Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. My name is Jeff, and today Aaron and I are going to be talking about setting up your mountain bike cockpit. So when we're riding in the flow, a lot of times piloting a mountain bike can feel like flying a fighter jet. And just like in a fighter jet, we got to set up our cockpit so we're ready to slay single track. So we're going to start at the top of the bike and work our way down, starting with the handlebars. So one of the big questions these days seems to be about handlebar width. What's your sort of general take on the width for handlebars on mountain bikes, Aaron? Yeah, after decades of narrow bars and long stems, we've seen a trend towards shorter stems and wider bars. Personally, I'm a, I'm a fan of wide bars, but I'm also six feet tall and have pretty long arms. So for XC riding, I like something in the 750 to 760 millimeter range. And then on my trail bike, I usually have something around 780 millimeters. You know, kind of a good rule of thumb for choosing a bar width is to get into a push-up position, just however naturally your arms fall when you're in a push-up position, and then measure to the outside of each of your hands, and that should give you a good idea of what an appropriate bar length is for you, or bar width is for you. But basically, though, you know, a 720 to 740 should work for riders on the shorter end of the spectrum, and then anything over 750 if you're, you know, 5'8 or 5'9 and up, should be all right. Yeah, one of the things and one of the reasons I guess people have questions about this is that it seems like these bar widths are just creeping up little by little each year. And I know for me personally, that's, that's actually been helpful for me because if you've ever tried going from like, you know, sub 700 millimeter bars up to like 760s, it's a big jump. It makes a big difference in how the bike handles and, you know, you'll feel like really uncomfortable jumping up that quickly. So I think what we're seeing is people are trying bars that are a little bit wider and, and they get used to it and they like it and they say, well, maybe I'll try a little bit more. And eventually, I guess a lot of us have found that, like Aaron said, about the 740 to 760 uh, or 780, I guess you said, yeah, up to 780 for trail is pretty comfortable. But again, it depends on your size and the style of riding that you're into. Right. Yeah. So bars kind of top out at 800 millimeters wide now. And that seems to be on, you know, downhill bikes and really burly trail and enduro bikes. But there's, there's probably very few that are running them at the full 800 width, you know, especially if you have trees lining the trails in your neck of the woods. But one thing I just want to touch on, you mentioned yet going to a wider bar is, uh, if you, you know, if you've been running a 660 and you jump up to a 760, it is going to be a huge difference in the way the bike handles. And also what you need to think about is you should probably change the length of your stem as well, because let's say you have a hundred millimeter long stem with 660 millimeter wide bars. If you put really wide bars on that long stem, it's going to make for even weirder handling. So as you go wider in bar, you should also go shorter in the stem. 
Yep. I was definitely guilty of that mistake uh, early on myself. And, and yeah, I was like, this is, this is BS. This <laughs> wide bars is a terrible idea, but yeah, you got to do it. In my opinion, you got to do it gradually. And then you also um, need to get the right size stem for your wider bars. So speaking of handlebars, uh, there are a number of different materials. Well, really two basic materials um, that you're going to be looking at with handlebars that will affect how uh, the bike feels when you're riding it. So Basically, there's alloy, which is aluminum bars, and then there's also carbon. So, Aaron, can you talk a little bit about those two different materials? Sure. Carbon carbon bars are said to provide some vibration damping, but that's kind of hard to quantify, especially if you have uh, a lot of suspension up front. It's hard to tell what is damping the trail, if it's the, if it's the fork, if it's the tire, or what. So it's kind of... Hard to put an exact figure on that. Carbon's generally lighter than aluminum, but that's not always the case. You can make a pretty light aluminum bar as well. Personally, I prefer aluminum bars because they're affordable, you know, readily available, and they tend to be more durable than carbon. You know, carbon's a very strong material up to a point. Bars can take a lot of damage when you when you crash. If you've you know if your bike's ever gone tomahawking down a hill, your bars are you know, definitely going to make contact with the ground. And if you get a really deep gouge in your bar, that can, uh, that can cause a failure. Or if you're kind of a ham fisted mechanic and you over tighten your stem, your stem faceplate bolts, or if you over tighten your brake levers or your other controls, I mean, even your grips, you can easily crush a carbon bar. Whereas with aluminum, you'll strip out the bolt before you break the bar. So, uh, something to consider, you know, that carbon bars are strong as long as they're not damaged. So if you're, if you're rough on your equipment, you probably shouldn't have carbon bars. Yeah. I'm like you, there's no comfort difference or anything that I'm able to tell, you know, one isn't more harsh than the other, because again, you're riding mountain bike trails. I suppose if you're on a rigid bike, maybe you would have a preference there, but um, yeah, for me, carbon, the choice of carbon just comes down to lighter weight. Um, but like you said, it's not, it's not a ton of weight savings. Yeah. You've also got, you know, there's a handful of titanium bars on the market, but I don't, I don't really understand why they exist. Honestly, they are heavier than aluminum and they're more expensive than carbon. So it doesn't seem to be the best of any world there. <laughs> yeah, but it's titanium. Exactly. I guess that's, yeah. If you have a, if you just want to get all matchy matchy with your titanium frame, then I guess it would make sense. But otherwise, it seems like a foolish purchase. Yes. Okay. So finally, on bars, uh, there's also the diameter of the bars to consider. And over the last couple of years, we've seen a new-ish bar size uh, becoming more popular, uh, which is the larger diameter 35 millimeter handlebar. What's sort of the impetus for the bigger bars and does it make a difference? Well, yeah. So for a long time, we had 25.4 millimeter bars. Um, and then we went to 31.8, probably somewhere in the, I don't know, early 2000s. And that, uh, is still the, the most dominant handlebar diameter. Uh, even on new bikes, you still see probably mostly 31.8. 35 millimeter came along and it was supposed to be, you know, stiffer and lighter than a 31.8 bar because you can, since you have a larger diameter, you can make the, the wall thickness thinner. So thereby making a lighter bar. 
But what a lot of riders found was that with a, you know, that large of a bar and the 35 millimeter stem, it makes for a front end that's maybe too stiff and there's, you're getting pinged around and, uh, in rock gardens and it's, it's harder to stay online when, you know, you actually want a little bit of flex in that instance and can, uh, a overly stiff cockpit setup like that can actually be uncomfortable. So we're starting to see a little bit more like 35 millimeter takeover a little bit more, but I mean, it's been around for, I don't know, five, six years or more now. And it, it's still hasn't come in and just stomped out 318 like 318 did uh, when it came in and kind of did away with 25.4 almost overnight seemingly. Yeah. I've been running a set of 35 millimeter bars on my main mountain bike. And, you know, I mean, I guess I'm not a super sensitive rider. I, I can't tell the difference between the stiffness, you know, compared to the 318s. But I can say, yeah, I, I like them too, because there's less chance of what you were saying earlier about like over clamping on the bars. Um, you don't have to put as much pressure on them uh, when you're doing the faceplate, you know, on your stem, just because there's like a wider clamping area on it. So for me, that's, I am the ham fisted mechanic that <laughs> could use that. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, I haven't noticed any performance differences with it. Yeah. I think actually, um, you know, some manufacturers went back and looked for ways to add a little bit of flex to their 35 millimeter bar. So they would, you'd still get the same amount of, you know, deflection and comfort that you would out of a 318 setup. Yeah. So while we're talking about handlebars, uh, we also got to talk about stems and we kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier, but stem length, that's the main thing that we're going to be looking at in terms of the, how it feels and how it performs. So what's a good recommendation for stem length in 2017? <laughs> well, like everything in cycling, it's up for debate. So, uh, and it's largely an issue of personal preference, but if, like I said earlier, you know, as your bar gets wider, your stem should get shorter. Uh, in general, a trail bike stem is going to be 35 millimeters on the short end to 70 millimeters on that's kind of like the longer end of the trail bike range. And then XC bikes are, have even gotten shorter over the years. So where you may have seen, you know, 120 millimeter stems were fairly commonplace back in the day. You're seeing XC bikes spec'd with you know, in some cases as short as 50 millimeters, but maybe more in like the 80 to 90 range. And one reason we're, we're seeing this change is because in the past few years, in general, all mountain bike, they have gotten longer top tubes. So a longer top tube means you need a shorter stem to maintain that same riding position as you would on an older bike, because, you know, that stem is essentially extending your top tube and now instead of doing that with the stem most bike manufacturers are doing that via the top tube what you don't want is a you know a long top tube and a long stem unless you're just a really tall lanky xc racer um that's about the only situation where you'd want something like that because you're going to be very stretched out yeah or what if you're trying to set like the downhill speed record like that guy that you know he's like laid down on top of the bike <laughs> like, that's that's probably what you would look like yeah very specific instances where that would that would probably work for you so yeah i mean stems in the 50 to 70 millimeter range should work for most riders no matter what discipline you're riding if you find yourself riding a uh, 120 millimeter long stem, there's probably a good chance your frame is 
too small for you. Uh, that's a good tip. What about materials on stems? Uh, I think we usually see aluminum, uh, but also some carbon, right? Aluminum is by far the most common material for stems, even at the, the very high end. You know, they can be heavily machined to reduce weight to a bare minimum. There are some carbon stems out there on the market for sure, but, uh, they tend to be very expensive. You know, just to give one example, Envy's, uh, mountain stem is $265. Ooh. So if you've got the cash to spare, you know, go for it. But personally, I don't think you need to ball out on a stem. Um, if you want something fancy, get a Thompson. It's a hundred bucks. It's going to last you forever. If you don't care about the brand, get whatever is the cheapest and the correct length for you. So you don't, don't, don't need to go crazy on the stem. I mean, there's, you know, not going to be a huge difference in weight and, you know, it's only there to keep your bars attached to your, fork. So it doesn't, uh, just serves one job. You don't, don't need to get too fancy with it. I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I bought a carbon stem. What I thought was a carbon stem, uh, off of one of the big online retailers is an FSA stem and it was like under a hundred bucks or something. And it, it said it was carbon. So I get the thing and it's carbon clad. Like Ooh. it's got, it's an aluminum stem <laughs> wrapped in carbon. This is the most ridiculous thing I've Ouch. ever seen. Yeah. So they added weight back to they it. They added weight to it. Yeah. Mm. It was like two stems in one. If you could like take <laughs> it apart, then maybe, yeah. maybe you'd have two stems. Right? Probably saw off that carbon and shave a few grams. <laughs> right. I don't know why this exists, but probably just to fool people like me into thinking they're getting a carbon stem for a really good price. Right. And it worked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Moving on to grips. So there are two main types of grips that people use for mountain biking. There's lock-on, and then there's the traditional friction-style grips. So Aaron, tell us a little bit about these types of grips. Yeah, so friction grips slide onto your bars, and they rely on a very tight fit to stay in place. Typically, you install them. you got to make sure your bar is really clean. You can spray some Windex on the bar and on the inside of the grip, and that'll help slide them on. I know if anyone has ever tried to mount a pair of grips like this, it, it's a wrestling match for sure. Another method is to use hairspray instead of Windex because when that dries, it'll provide a little bit more adhesion between the grip and the bar. But I, I don't like friction grips. They're, they can slip or what's called throttling when, when you get, when they get wet. So if you're a heavy sweater or if it's raining, water can work its way in between the grip and the bar and then the grip is just spinning all around while you're trying to ride which can be extremely dangerous and they tend to be more fragile than lock-ons because you know there's no core to them there's no like there's no end caps or anything so if you tag a tree or something you can chew up your grips and like they're a pain in the ass to get on they're just as big a pain in the ass to get off so Pretty much the only way they have lock-ons beat is in weight. You can get some really, really light, uh, especially like foam. You see a lot of racers using silicone foam grips because they are extremely light. And they can be very comfortable, but they are definitely not the most durable or easy to maintain. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, that uh, the friction grips, seems like some of them are thicker and more comfortable because they don't have that extra layer of plastic you know, between the, the actual gripping surface and the bar. So a lot of them, they'll be the same diameter, like the same hand size, but yeah, they'll have a little bit more that 
material that makes it a little more comfortable in your hand. Okay, so I wanted to talk too, while we're talking about grips, about gloves, because this is, again, it's a contact point and it's, you know, between your hand and your bars. So gloves are basically, they're, they're really three ways to go about it. You got full finger gloves, fingerless, or no gloves at all, which some people actually do and is perfectly acceptable. So Aaron, what's your feeling about mountain bike gloves? Yeah, well, I know what I like. I, I like really thin, tacky grips um, because I feel like I have really good control of the bike. And I like that very, you know, tactile feel. And if I could, I would ride without gloves because I, I just like that really, I like the interface. But, you know, I live in Georgia. I sweat a lot. It gets really hot here. It rains. So there's probably like 10 rides a year that the weather works out where it's not not so humid that I can actually get away with riding gloveless. So most of the time, um, I wear full finger gloves. I like very thin, very lightweight gloves. I don't like any padding in the palms. For me, the padding actually causes hand pain and causes like weird calluses and stuff on my palms instead of preventing it. So I, I, yeah, the more minimal, the better in, in terms of gloves for me. I like the full finger over the fingerless because they do provide a little protection out on the trail. So, you know, if you have branches whipping up against your hands, you have briars and you have, or you go over the bars and you go sliding into home like head first, like Pete Rose or something, you know, you'll, you'll get a little bit more protection with a full finger glove than you would a fingerless. Yeah. I'm like you, I, I prefer the full finger glove. A lot of times the fingerless gloves will bunch up because they, they can kind of get pulled down as you're gripping on the bike. And, uh, like I think you mentioned, you can, you can actually build up a lot of calluses from wearing those. And that's something I didn't realize when I started out riding. I thought, you know, fingerless gloves look cool and they weren't super hot. So, you know, they, they breathe well, but, but they do tend to give you, you know, sort of callus issues right where they're cut off. And then the other thing, yeah, I agree with you too, that gloves for me, the main purpose is to keep my hands from slipping off the bars. You know, I'm not looking for a lot of padding out of the glove itself. Again, I think that's a mistake I made as a beginning rider was, you know, I probably started off with a pair of padded gloves, you know, gel or yeah. whatever. And, and it my sounds hands, like a good idea. Right. It sounds like a great idea. And and then my hands weren't comfortable. And so then I'm guessing I probably thought, well, I need more gel. More, <laughs> more gel. <laughs> right. Because this, these really, and it, the same happens with saddles and we'll talk about that, but that's why you go to walmart or something and you see these like gel saddle covers and you know the answer a lot of times counterintuitively is not more gel <laughs> the answer is actually just to get rid of it and you know let your hands do what they're meant to do which is you know hold on to the handlebars in a in a normal way so that's my free advice moving on to controls these days it seems like our handlebars are tasked with holding a ton of controls. So we'll just run through a number of these and talk about the positioning and that kind of thing and offer some tips on that as well. So let's start with brakes. What about brakes, Aaron? Yeah. Too often I see people with their brakes and their shifters slid all the way out against their grips. And unless you have very, very tiny hands, um, you can improve the ergonomics by adjusting your controls. You know, unfortunately the way bikes end up like this is, you know, a shop pulls the bike out of the box and make sure everything's tight. 
and then they sell the bike and they don't bother to set up the controls for the rider. I'm not saying every shop, but you know, it's especially, especially on you know, more entry level bikes, you see this, that not taking the time to get everything adjusted for the rider. The other thing is, you know, modern disc brakes are powerful enough that you only need to use one finger to stop. So you don't need to have your brake so close to your grip. You know, you only need room for one finger. So you should set up your brakes so that when you, when your hands are on the grips, you can comfortably reach the little hooked end of the lever. Your index finger, typically, there are some middle finger breakers out there, but they're very few and far between. Um, so your index figure should just reach that hook at the end of the lever. And believe it or not, that's all you need to stop um, is just that that little bit of uh, real estate there. You know, a lot of brakes also have adjustable reach for the levers, so you can dial that in for your your preference. Some people like their lever to be very close to the bar. Um, you know, some people prefer it a little bit further out. But, yeah, the majority of uh, disc brakes in the you know, the mid range and up are going to have, um, adjustable reach on the lever. Yeah. One thing that I need to be conscious of when I'm setting up my brake levers is getting the right position, you know, horizontally and vertically. So I tend to want to set up my brakes when I'm just looking at a bike, you know, I tend to, for whatever reason, want to put the brake levers like horizontal to the ground, but actually you want to, you want to push them down a good bit. Hopefully I'm explaining that correctly, but but basically that's going to put your hands in a better position, a more comfortable position for longer rides. And you're also going to have better control when you're going down. Cause for me, what I need to do is visualize the bike sort of pointing downhill when I'm setting up my brakes, because that's when I'm going to be using them most often. And so they need to be in a comfortable spot for when your bike is, is pointed downward, if that makes sense. So I always have to adjust and play with that. I don't know what the exact angle is that, you know, is right for me, but I can usually kind of eyeball it. But again, my eyeball often tells me to put it too horizontal and it doesn't work very well. Yeah. It should just, it should feel very natural reaching the brake lever. You know, you shouldn't feel like your index finger is reaching too far up or down. It should, it should, you know, whatever kind of like the angle your hand is at, your finger should just follow that to the brake lever. Okay. Next up shifters. Fortunately, these days, a lot of us are getting rid of one of the two shifters, but that's still an important consideration for placement, right? Absolutely. You want to be able to reach your shifter easily with your thumb. So you shouldn't have to look down and fumble around to shift. That's, that's never a good idea. You want to keep your eyes up, keep them on the trail. So you slide your shifter inboard and outboard to find your sweet spot. And then once you kind of have the correct distance, you can work on that roll like Jeff was saying with the brake lever, you know, what angle you want it at. You can do the same thing with the shifter. You can either, you know, push it forward or pull it back so the angle's more comfortable for your thumb. Right. So also competing for bar space are dropper post remotes. And it seems like I don't have a dropper post, so I I can't talk too much about this. But it seems like people are really particular about their dropper post remotes. And people are having a hard time finding ones that work for them, right? Yeah, there's all kinds of aftermarket remotes for dropper posts now. You know, you figure something you're spending three to five hundred dollars on, you got to go and drop another seventy to a hundred bucks on a Ooh. better remote for it. That's kind <laughs> of a bummer. You know, I I'm very particular about my 
cockpit setup and definitely one of the things is you know getting the dropper post remote in the correct position because probably even more so than a shifter you really don't want to be fumbling around trying to find your dropper post when you need it it it's uh you know it could be dangerous it could just be a distraction it's annoying so yeah you want to you want to be sure it's in a good place if you're running a one by drive train and you don't have a front shifter then you've got a really good spot to mount your dropper post remote on the left-hand side of the bar underneath your brake lever. And that's, that's good because it's in, it's going to be in a similar position ergonomically to your, your shifter on your right side. And it's also going to be, you know, protected in the case of a crash. It's underneath your brake lever instead of being, you know, out on top of your bar where it'll be the first thing to hit the ground. Well, and the positioning on that remote and making sure it's comfortable is even more important than you might think, because especially if you ride trails uh, like the ones we have around here that are rolling and, you know, there's a lot of ups and downs, you're going to be hitting that remote a lot of times during the ride. Would you say you use that remote as much or less than your shifter remote? That's funny you asked that question because I was thinking about that um, when I was doing the Pisgah stage race last week. <laughs> I probably use my dropper remote as often as my shifter. I was actually trying to devise some way to like <laughs> measure clicks on each side, you know? Get a GoPro, man, and then review <laughs> Just your count footage. It. Oh, that sounds brutal. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I mean, I, you know, I know a lot of people. Well, most people are sold on on dropper posts, but for those that aren't, they just don't understand why they need it, or they'll say like, "Oh, well, it's not educated yet." Like, that's right. We're we're here to spread the the dropper gospel, <laughs> or they say, you know, like, "Oh, I I only use mine on on long descents," but that's kind of that's kind of missing out on maximizing your dropper usage. My post is constantly up and down up and down up and down if there's a corner that i can get through quicker by dropping my post i'm gonna i'm gonna do it even if it's a flat turn through some you know winding trail like and it's just more fun it makes it easier to to hop over things it makes it you know i feel more comfortable jumping when the post is down so i mean i can still do all those things with a with a straight post but it's not as much fun so if you've got one if you already got a dropper on your bike use it, use it all the time. Like just go (laughs) stop listening to this podcast right now and just go, go use your dropper. (laughs) That's awesome. So another control that we have on a lot of our bars are suspension lockout controls. And even if you don't have a remote for this, a lot of us still are, you know, using our suspension controls on the fork itself. So not on the bar, but you're reaching down and fiddling with your fork. So those controls are important as well. Do you have any tips for suspension lockouts, Aaron? Yeah. Um, like you said, you know, a lot of mid-range and up forks and shocks will have some sort of lever on them. So if you don't have a remote, you can reach down and, and you know, flip the lever on your on your fork or on your shock. But if you do have one, I've, like I've been testing a Rocky Mountain Element recently, and it has a remote for the rear shock. And I I really like it actually. I was kind of dubious that I I would use it, but it was great, especially for racing. This is the bike I rode at the Pisgah Stage Race, and I positioned mine just above the right side shifter. So, and then I had my dropper post remote on the left side underneath the brake lever. So you know it was just slightly a little bit more of a reach to to hit it than it was to hit the shifter. 
but the remote, it's a Fox remote. It's actually really nice, has a very light throw to it. So you're not, you know, you're not really having to put a lot of thumb pressure on it, which is nice. And to unlock it, it was just, you could just basically bump the side of it to unlock it. So if you did have it locked out and all of a sudden you ended up in a chunky section, again, you're not looking down at your bar to, to try to unlock your suspension. But yeah, I used it a ton. I used it not only during climbing, but also during rolling sections of trail where I wanted a little bit more support from the rear suspension where, you know, maybe traction wasn't, you know, there wasn't any rocks or roots or anything to ride over for a little bit. You can, you pump the bike harder and, and uh, get a little bit more pedal efficiency in the, in the middle section. And then, you know, on the, or in the middle setting rather. And then for, you know, the gravel climbs and stuff like that, I would lock out the, uh, the rear completely and just have a, a really, you know, really fast bike going up the hill. So, yeah, it, I don't know, you know, if de- it's definitely good for a race bike. I don't know, maybe if for the general trail rider, it may not be that big a deal to, to reach down and, you know, flip a switch on the rear shock rather than going through the, the hassle of buying and mounting a remote. But for a racer, I'd say it's, it's definitely a something to consider. Yeah. I have a remote for the front shock on my, sorry, front fork on my cross country bike. And I do use it a good bit. Um, but I could see that it, it might get confusing if I also had a dropper post remote there. But yeah, like you said, you can, you can do it either way. There's still the ability to reach down and, and change your fork up, but it really just depends on what you're trying to do with your bike. As if we, hadn't already covered our bars with a bunch of remotes and things. There's also accessories to consider. So GPS, smartphone, I'm a big fan of running a bell on my bars. Any tips for mounting all that junk, Aaron? <laughs> I'd say wherever you got room left, basically, you know, mount your GPS wherever it'll fit. Like going back to what we were talking about earlier about how stems have gotten shorter, a lot of times that doesn't leave enough room to mount a GPS unit where in the past you could kind of mount it to the, to the main body of the stem. But there's other solutions out there. I've been using a really cool top cap mount from K Edge and, um, it takes place of your stem top cap and it's a little Garmin quarter turn mount. So, um, yeah, your Garmin just sits right at the top of your, uh, top of your stem it's really easy to read and it's really easy to reach and then you don't have to put anything else on your bars and like you said bells are a great idea i think you know you should have a bell on every bike you know your your road bike just because it's you know it's it's nice to hear a little ring-a-ding when you're passing somebody it can be um less startling than saying rider back <laughs> that can kind of cause people to to do some squirrel-like moves and, you know, dart one way and then dart the other where Isabelle is just a little more pleasant. So, yeah, if if you have room, try to mount your bell close to your thumb on either side where you can, uh, you can easily reach it. So when you're, again, you're not fumbling on it when you need it. Yeah, another one in that category that I forgot about too is lights. If you're riding at night, you got to have lights on your bar too. And all the controls that go along with that. I'm starting to think we need like voice control for our bikes or, <laughs> or something, a heads up display perhaps. So finally, if you've got an e-bike, then there's all the e-bike stuff. So your e-bike is going to have readout that lets you know how much battery you have left. A lot of times there's going to be controls for the amount of pedal assist that you get. So again, that's just one more thing that you're going to have to figure out a way to put on your bars. So 
again, this maybe is another argument for wider bars. <laughs> if you're running out of room, get you some 800s and have space for days. Just have wraparound bars like a hula hoop. Yeah, well... I mean, the guys, the bikepacking guys, right, have those. Oh, the Jones bar. Yeah, the Jones bar. And one of the guys I ride with regularly has those on his, you know, regular bike and he uses both of the bars. He's got stuff mounted to both bars. So <laughs> Paul, right? <laughs> no, this is Mike. Oh, Paul. I think Paul has them too, actually. The popular bars. <laughs> All right. So moving down finally away from the handlebars, we're on the saddle. So. Saddle selection is a pretty personal thing. We've written several articles about this, um, including a great article about how to choose the best mountain bike saddle, uh, if you search for that on single tracks. But um, we'll quickly run through some of the considerations for choosing a good saddle. The first would be the shape, right, Aaron? Yeah, that's right. So as we all know, butts come in all shapes and sizes, and so do saddles. You know, I prefer, personally prefer uh, kind of a mid-width saddle that's long and as flat on top. That, for me, seems to work best for trail riding. It gives you a lot of real estate to slide around on to adjust your body position if you're going up or downhill. Um, that just seems to be the most comfortable for me. But that's that's my butt. And so I know a lot of people, you know, there's people that prefer more rounded saddles and, you know, narrower saddles or wider saddles or saddles with cutouts. I mean, there's, there's definitely no shortage of, of saddle shapes out there for sure. Yeah. I really like the narrow saddles, uh, personally, long, narrow saddles. And part of that may be because I don't have a dropper. So it makes it easier to get off the front of the saddle, but also off the back uh, when you're doing like a really steep descent. You know, a wider saddle tends to, it's, it's harder to get around. So for me, that's my preference. The next consideration is padding. And we kind of talked about this. Uh, there are plenty of foam padded seats and gel padded seats and things like that. For me personally, I prefer a, sa- a saddle with minimal padding. Uh, but again, that's that's just me. What about you, Aaron? Yeah, um, I prefer the, the kind of more streamlined, uh, minimal padding as well. For one, it, it just, it works for me. It's comfortable enough, even for four, five, six hour rides, whatever. And part of it also, if I'm being totally honest, is aesthetics. Um, I think just a, a thinner profile saddle just looks faster. It makes your bike look like it's going faster, you know, whereas like a thick, cushy saddle just kind of puts a hamper on that. And you kind of, what we talked about earlier, you know, you, you think all this padding is going to be a benefit, but that's really not always the case. If a saddle is too soft, it can cause some chafing in regions where you don't want to chafe for sure. And as you move up in saddle prices, you know, a lot of what you're paying for is higher quality padding. So maybe while it is not as thick as like a, you know, a cheaper cushy saddle, it's actually going to be more comfortable because that that padding is, you know, it's just a higher quality. It's going to be more durable. It's going to last longer. So that's something to something to consider. And you know, a lot of shops have test saddles available, so you can you can try out a few different things and and see what works for you. Yeah, the more expensive saddles will have that better padding that's going to bounce back more often. You know, if you have a, an inexpensive one, eventually the foam is just not going to bounce back. It's just going to be flattened. <laughs> so that can lead to some problems. But there are, there are saddles with no padding. There are some 
Um, you mostly see them on like race road bikes and stuff, but some people do run them. They're, they're just like a plastic saddle. So it is possible. And then the other extreme is, uh, the saddles that I talked about where it's like a gel saddle and then you put a gel cover on top of it. <laughs> I, I took a picture of one that I saw at the beach of this bike that the saddle itself was probably, it's probably nine inches wide at the back. Uh, it had springs on it too for a little bit of extra comfort. It of course had its, its own like gel padding. And then there was this huge gel seat cover on top of it. So you sit on this thing and you feel like you're going to like slide off the <laughs> side of it, like you're riding a waterbed or something. But, <laughs> nice. but yeah, the double decker gel. Yeah. The, if, if you're having problems with saddle comfort, you know, again, more gel is probably not the answer, but again, try different things and see what works. So connected to the saddle and impacting the saddle's height is the seat post. So we've talked a lot about dropper posts um, and the benefits of that. Is there anything else you can add to the seat post discussion, Aaron? Yeah, well, you want to make sure that your um, saddle is in the proper position on your seat post for one. Generally, a good place to start is having your saddle level and having it centered on the rails on top of the seat post. And that's just a good, you know, good starting point to make adjustments from there. I often adjust my fore and aft position of my saddle, but that's pretty much always level across the board. And then, of course, you want to make sure that it's at the right height. So that is basically going to be, you know, a good rule of thumb for that is if you get on the bike and you put your heel on the pedal, which sounds a little weird, but if you use your heel on the pedal, your leg should be basically straight at the bottom of your pedal stroke. And that way, when your toe's on the pedal, your knee will have a very slight bend to it. Well, maybe a little more than very slight, but it will have a slight bend to it when you're, when you're pedaling. So yeah, you don't want to be, you don't want your seat too high because if you do, you're going to, you're going to cause yourself all kinds of problems. You know, you can cause knee pain. Um, and then you're going to be rocking back and forth because, you know, because you're going too far down, your legs extending too far. So you're really good set yourself up for some some bad saddle sores doing that. And then again, if it's too low, it's just gonna it's probably gonna be really uncomfortable for your quads. So probably won't have the chafing issues, but yeah, you'll you your pedal stroke won't be as efficient and you definitely won't be comfortable. Yeah. And the thing you touched on it too that most people concentrate on or focus on is the saddle height, but just as important is the measurement fore and aft so how close the saddle is to the bars versus how far away it is and then also the angle on your saddle because if you get either of those wrong you're not going to be comfortable and you're going to have different issues so definitely pay attention to that stuff finally the last sort of contact point that's a part of the mountain bike cockpit are the pedals Uh, we i think we talked about this in the shoe podcast um, but there are basically two different types of pedals that mountain bikers use. There's the clipless pedals, and then there's also platform pedals. So what kinds of concerns or trade-offs are there between using clipless and platform pedals for setting up a mountain bike cockpit? Yeah, again, that's that's another personal preference thing. You know, I, I like using both. I primarily use clipless pedals, but I do... Um, I do like to ride flat pedals for certain things. Um, typically, you know, if you're riding downhill or if you're going to be doing a lot of jumping 
or if you're maybe doing a lot of a trail with a lot of hike biking and you know you're going to be pushing your bike up a hill a lot and you don't want to be wearing um you know some stiff cycling shoes then you know platform or flat pedals can be the way to go clipless pedals I mean, if you're talking about pedaling efficiency, particularly in climbing technical terrain, it's they're really kind of hard to beat. You can, if you, you have really good technique and really good skills and you're a really strong rider, you can power up some crazy technical climbs on flats. But, you know, one wrong move and your foot shoots off the flat pedal and then, you know, your, your climb's over. Whereas with a clipless pedal, you know, you can cheat a little bit. You can, you can come to a full stop and... And you, since you're clipped in, you can still pull your foot back around and, and get your momentum back going. So I think for technical climbing, I mean, clipless definitely has flats beat. It's not, again, it's not to say you can't do it in flats. It's just easier in clipless. Yeah. One of the things that a lot of us should keep in mind when we're setting up clipless pedals is actually the cleat position. So that, that'll make a big difference in your comfort and your power and also yeah, you're just stability on the bike. Leah was doing some research recently on cleat position and, you know, there are like 5,000 word articles written about this, <laughs> like something as seemingly minor as, you know, how far forward or back or side to side should you p- place your cleat in your shoe, but it does make a big difference. And so that's something that, you know, if you're having problems, that could be somewhere to look to see if there's a way you can adjust your cleats to, you know, improve your comfort on the bike. And then the other thing that I would say is if you're, if you're choosing between platform and clipless pedals, it might be helpful to think about the platform that you're using to step on your pedals. So basically with platform pedals, the pedal itself is the flat surface that your foot is coming in contact with. Whereas if you're in clipless shoes, the shoe is the thing that actually has the platform in it. So Either way, you need a flat surface to put on your pedal. So like, for example, if you've ever tried riding a pair of clipless pedals in your like Converse All-Stars, like that feels terrible because you can feel, you can feel the pedal right through your foot. And that's because there is no flat surface. There's no flat surface between your foot and the pedal. So whatever you're doing, you want to make sure that you have a nice big flat surface and there are platform pedals now that are ginormous that are like, you know, as big as like a pizza box, <laughs> maybe not that big, but they're big. Yeah. And so, um, again, you know, the more of that platform that you have, uh, the more power that you're potentially able to put down. And then also, you know, it just feels more natural. Like you're walking down the street, uh, versus, you know, balancing on a, like a spindle. So, yeah. Well, this has by no means been an exhaustive discussion about mountain bike cockpit setup. Oh, no, I'm tired. It it has been a little tiring. (laughs) But anyway, we did our best, and we hope you enjoyed it and found some good tips from it. If you're enjoying the Single Tracks podcast, be sure to rate us uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And also, we love hearing your feedback. So come to singletracks.com, post in the forums, or comment on our articles you know we'd love to hear what you're thinking and what kinds of topics you're interested in that's all we have this week talk to you again next week peace